0: Hi, this is Jordan Gosporé, host of Hazard and Jay. i I'm back in your feed with a special surprise, an episode from our friends at The Sweaty Penguin. It's a podcast presented by Peril and Promise, which also funds Hazard in J. But instead of talking about Superfund sites and childhood trauma in Texas, The Sweaty Penguin features in-depth, nonpartisan conversations with leading global experts on a variety of environmental issues. I listen to the show because it cuts through the doom and gloom of the climate conversation with humor and intelligence, and has one of the most disturbingly cute names ever. This episode of The Sweaty Penguin breaks down what the Inflation Reduction Act means for climate change. Enjoy. Well, a hundred senators just got their sleep schedules messed up for the next month, but in a 51 to 50 vote, they have passed the Inflation Reduction Act. So what is this bill, and what on earth do climate change and inflation have to do with each other? Good Wednesday morning. I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon email or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguins. This Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. On the climate front, the Inflation Reduction Act would invest an estimated 369... Nice billion into climate change and energy security over the next 10 years. That averages to about $37 billion per year. Among other priorities, that investment includes $60 billion for clean energy manufacturing, a half a billion for the production of heat, pumps, $30 billion for states and electric companies to accelerate a clean energy transition, $6 billion for reducing emissions from chemical steel and cement plants, $27 billion for states to provide financial assistance to low-income communities to benefit from clean energy technologies, $20 billion for climate-smart agriculture, and tax credits for carbon capture, electric vehicles, and home and appliance retrofits. And that's a lot of money. Seriously, did Oprah write this bill? You get a tax credit! You get a tax credit! Everybody gets a tax credit! In fact, the Inflation Reduction Act would be the largest climate investment and largest environmental justice investment in American history. The bill also would facilitate and require more oil and gas drilling, but would impose a fee on methane emissions from these projects. Alright, so lots of big numbers. It's like that day as a kid where you ask your teacher what comes after million, they say billion, and then you start throwing billion after every number you know just to see if people suddenly think you're smart. But what do these big numbers mean for the climate? The headline I keep seeing is that it will bring U.S. net greenhouse gas emissions down 40% by 2030, and while that's true in a sense, we need to put that in a lot more context. When they say 40% reduction by 2030, they are comparing to when U.S. emissions were at their peak around 2005. That's the year the Destiny's Child Trio wore their last matching outfit, so I guess it was the peak of society as well. Since 2005, the United States' emissions have come down by about 12% already. And according to think tanks such as the Rhodium Group and Energy Innovation, if we project out to 2030... We were on track already to see emissions drop by 24% as compared to 2005 levels. In fact, just last year, climate tech startups raised $70 billion in money from venture capital firms. That's nearly double the $37 billion per year of investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, and that happened without the government stepping in. So is turning 24% into 40% a big deal? Absolutely. But I wouldn't want it to come off like we're going from zero to 40, or that all of these emissions are being slashed in the next seven and a half years. There was a lot of climate action already happening before this bill, and some suggest the bill could spur even more action from the private sector once it goes into effect. It would be like finding a car rolling on its own down a hill about a quarter of the way down, getting behind it, giving it a big shove, and then saying you single-handedly got that car to the bottom of the hill. Did you help it get there faster? Of course. But you can't take credit for the whole thing. Besides, what's that car doing free-falling down a hill anyway? Where's its owner? Now, I did say last week that I'd try to come prepared today with a steaming hot take on this. And sadly, I don't think I'll actually be able to follow through on that. Maybe they could kick an extra half billion into environmental comedy podcasts. You know, maybe give some special attention to ones with a cute animal in the name. I think that's a fair take. But beyond that, it's a little hard to say anything too spicy because on the whole, Americans overwhelmingly support this bill. Data for Progress found 73% of American voters support the Inflation Reduction Act, including 95% of Democrats and 52% of Republicans. And if we dig into the details, 8 of the 12 climate priorities in the bill saw 50% or more support from Republican voters, and all 12 saw overwhelming support from Democratic voters. I should add that Data for Progress is a left-wing think tank, but according to the New York Times, their polling data is pretty accurate. To be fair, all 50 Republican senators voted against the bill, so I'm not trying to say it's bipartisan, it clearly wasn't. And I've actually seen criticisms from some of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. But given that polling data... I'm willing to trust that a healthy majority of the general public likes the bill, even if nobody thinks it's perfect. It's like credit card readers or South Park. On the podcast, I like to start conversations about issues you might not know about and try to help foster common ground, but once most people agree on a solution, I'm pretty easygoing. What's the point of me blabbering on if most of you are on the same page, right? I mean, I'm happy to spin some facts about icebergs into a rant where I tell you all the details of Deontay Johnson's new contract, but there comes a point where that just isn't helping anyone. What I will do, though, is take a stab at the question that may be the biggest elephant in the room. What on earth does $369 billion of climate investments have to do with inflation? right? Because I'm sure it seemed a little bit like the title of the bill didn't reflect the contents, like they dumped Doritos, Nilla wafers, and mayonnaise into a bowl and said they made a salad. And a lot of people have been arguing exactly that, that the bill does everything except actually reduce inflation. So what's the deal? Quick inflation briefer, Inflation refers to prices going up, or more precisely, the value of our currency going down. This phenomenon happens when across the economy, there is low supply and high demand. For example, if I put my futon on eBay and I'm the only futon on the website, but eight people are on eBay looking for a futon, you can imagine the price of the futon will go up quite a bit. That's because there's low supply and high demand. Now, imagine that, but across the entire economy. And you understand inflation. Unrelated question, does anyone want my futon? It feels like a rock, it's about two feet too short, and has a hinge that pokes into your spine the entire night, so we'll start the bidding at one million dollars. The economy has seen some pretty extreme inflation this year, particularly as it pertains to gasoline and food prices. At this rate, I think I'd sell my futon for a gallon of gas, it's been absurd. And even though inflation is really the responsibility of the Federal Reserve System and Congress doesn't have a lot of power to address it, it makes sense that as our representatives, they'd want to try to do what they can. But if Congress is putting money into the economy to the tune of $369 billion, that means people have more money to spend, and when people have more money, their demand for stuff goes up, and high demand equals more inflation. Are you still with me? Are you ready for the final exam? It's 40 questions, multiple choice, and you have to answer all the questions in a blue book for some unknown reason, I decided. But understanding this dynamic as it pertains to inflation, we have to ask the question, how would this inflation reduction act, which is putting money into the economy, actually reduce inflation? And that's where Congress worked to find some nuance. Rather than paying for this bill out of the government's pocket. Congress chose to implement a variety of taxes, largely targeted toward wealthier companies and individuals. So while they invest $369 billion into energy and climate, they plan to generate $739 billion in tax revenue. A good chunk of that money, over $300 billion, would just go toward reducing the deficit. If you've heard that word a hundred times and are too afraid to ask what it means, the deficit refers to the amount of money the government spends minus the amount of money it receives. The United States racks up quite a bit of debt each year. It's like the Netflix of countries. So reducing the deficit means reducing the amount of new debt we accumulate. And in raising money via taxes on wealthier Americans and putting money into reducing the deficit, Congress's hope would be that some people have a little less money to spend, so demand in the economy would go down and prices would drop as well. So there's climate, there's the deficit, and then there's a third spending priority healthcare. About $64 billion is going toward lowering healthcare premiums and allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And that must be a fun conversation, right? Hey, pharmaceutical companies. How much is this really important life saving pill going to cost? $200 billion. Can you do any better? 500 trillion quadrillion dollars. We were thinking more like 10 bucks? No. Fine. 15 bucks and I run around the parking lot in a Speedo. Deal. Now this action won't necessarily affect inflation in either direction, but it would offer financial assistance to many Americans at a time when inflation is making finances trickier. So these two moves think about inflation in the short term. Would they successfully address inflation? Some say yes, some say no, but ultimately it's really hard to say. I'm not going to argue one way or the other, I'm just trying to express what in theory the bill is trying to accomplish. But where I think this gets interesting is if we look to the medium and long term. Medium term, which I'll call the next decade or so, or the time it will take for the first millennial to buy a house, these climate investments set up the economy to be less vulnerable to inflation-related shocks. 41% of inflation right now is driven by fossil fuels. 41%. Obviously, the rest is driven by my cornering of the uncomfortable tiny futon market on eBay, but 41% is still a big deal. So if the United States is less reliant on fossil fuels for energy and transportation, there hopefully wouldn't be ridiculous inflation next time fossil fuel prices go haywire. There would be a lot more access to alternatives. New technologies such as electric vehicles, solar panels, and heat pumps can also save consumers on their energy bills after that initial investment. So by helping households access these technologies, the Inflation Reduction Act would hope to provide some direct relief for people as well. And then long, long, long term, like when the first person born after 2002 gets a Facebook page, In reducing carbon emissions by a significant amount, even if it isn't 40% single-handedly, the Inflation Reduction Act would make a dent in global climate change. It's one step, but it could be a springboard for more climate policy here or abroad. If climate action is a staircase, this step is made out of trampoline material. Well, allegedly, don't do triple backflips without consulting your personal economist. And I know, it will take decades. But if and when climate change has gotten under control, some drivers of inflation would be gotten under control simultaneously. Food has been another sector with remarkably high inflation, and a lot of that has been due to crop failures as a result of extreme weather. Heat waves drive demand for electricity when people need air conditioning, and can affect electricity supply if parts of the power grid go offline. And wildfires have forced a lot of supply chains to rely on alternate shipping routes. All of these climate issues and more either lead to lower supply or higher demand in the economy, thus creating inflation. The more we ultimately do to mitigate these issues, the less future inflation we'll have to deal with decades down the line. Again, that's all in theory, though. It's like when your flaky friend suggests a trip to Greece— Like, sure, please tell me all about the restaurant you saw on TikTok and how we're totally going. Inflation is a complicated subject, and so I can share with you how this bill thinks about inflation, but it's entirely possible that none of these things actually play out the way the bill intended. Like I said, one of the main criticisms I've seen of the bill is that it won't reduce inflation, and there's certainly a very good case to make for that. When a climate policy is said and done, though, I never really find myself all that interested in opining on it. Don't get me wrong, if you banned all cow milk, I'd probably come on here and complain about it. Or if a lot of news stories are getting facts wrong, like with the West Virginia v. EPA Supreme Court case, I'll feel more comfortable jumping in. For something like the Inflation Reduction Act, though, where there's lots of pros, lots of cons, but the majority of the public likes it, I'll certainly bring it up. But being more of a journalist, I have a tough time forming a personal opinion. I know, that sounds weird, but it's true. It doesn't help me do reporting. My job isn't to sway you one way or another. I just give you the facts, clear up some things, and then let you think about it. And for me, after this episode and any accompanying writing I do goes out, my brain will probably jump very quickly to the next story. I hope it's not another heat wave or flood. I hope it's something fun like a study finding out that chameleons can't tell each other apart. I mean, that would make a great episode. But yeah, whether you like the bill or not, everyone can agree that the Inflation Reduction Act did not solve climate change. To stay in line with the latest IPCC report, which describes the clearest path to meeting our international climate goals, the entire world would need to slash emissions by 43% by the early 2030s. That's not based on 2005 numbers, that's based on today. I believe 2019 numbers, technically. So the Inflation Reduction Act puts the United States in that ballpark, but isn't enough on its own for that goal. There's no need to take that as a bad thing, though. Climate change was never going to be tackled in one bill. And Congress seems to have actually taken my advice from a couple weeks ago. Once you find common ground to do some things, or in this case, barely enough votes to do some things, then actually do that. Get it done, break out the sleeping bags for post-vote nap time, and then get back to work on the rest of the issues. After the West Virginia v. EPA ruling, People seemed really cynical when I said climate was the responsibility of Congress, but it only took a month for them to make their move. I'm not saying I called it, but I mean, I kind of did. I'm not going to throw them a parade, though, because that's exactly what they should have done, right? It's their job. So if you are in the 73% of Americans who are fangirling over the Inflation Reduction Act, enjoy your dub, but remember that it's one piece of the puzzle, albeit a historic one. And if you're not in that 73%, speak up. What climate policy approaches intrigue you? How can we foster even more common ground next time around? You know I love a juicy bipartisan bill. But however you may feel, we've got more to do to meet our goals for the decade. The world may have been simpler when Destiny's Child wore their matching outfits, but maybe if we keep moving on climate, 2030 could turn out even better. Do you want a daring and fresh experience that will make you say, "Hmm, this feels weird?" If so, aquarium touch tanks are for you. You've touched things in air, but what about in water? You've seen plants in the ground, but what about plants in water that also have teeth? Aquarium touch tanks, the new frontier? The sweaty penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbsorg perilandpromise Welcome back to tip of the iceberg. It's time for ask me anything where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon email or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line. So be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from Bryce Peterson, who asks, Does Ethan think there's any kind of scientism or overzealousness when it comes to emerging climate change mitigating technologies? Thanks so much for the question, Bryce. For those that aren't familiar, scientism refers to an excessive belief in the power of scientific knowledge and techniques. And I think the answer depends a little bit on the technology we're talking about and a little bit on our willingness to make mistakes. So what do I mean by that? In terms of technologies, Clean energy sources such as solar, wind, and batteries have actually become significantly more viable in recent years. In the last decade, the cost of photovoltaic solar dropped by 85%, the cost of onshore wind dropped by 55%, and the cost of batteries for electric vehicles dropped by 85%. Today, solar and wind are very often less expensive than the cheapest fossil fuel alternative. So we've certainly moved past the just-toying-around-with-it stage for these things. We know they work, we know they're economically doable, and we can debate what combination of energy sources we like in an electric grid, but it's certainly reasonable to expect solar and wind to be able to scale up and play a prominent role. That said, these technologies have issues. For example, in our solar power episode... We talked about how there's been issues with metal mining, issues with siting, issues with manufacturing, particularly in Western China, plus the famous issue that the sun isn't always shining, making storage an important thing to figure out. So that's where I guess one could argue that there's scientism or overzealousness going on with such a climate change mitigating technology. But my response to that would be, scientism or overzealousness on the part. Of whom? Look, I know people in the climate movement who tune out the issues with these technologies. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. But certainly, there are a lot of important people discussing these challenges vocally and advocating that these clean energy industries take them seriously as they grow. These are issues that can be overcome and just need to be discussed and addressed. On the flip side, I see a whole lot of talk. That solar and wind just aren't viable at all because of some of these issues. And that's maybe the opposite problem. Look, I don't want clean energy to make a mess, but look at the leeway we've given coal and oil and natural gas. Running this podcast, I guess, makes me something of an entrepreneur, and I certainly go through life with a lot of entrepreneurial philosophies, one of which being if you see an opportunity that you want, then go for it, and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you can admit them and try to fix them. That second part hasn't really been the ammo of the fossil fuel industry, let's be honest. But it can be, and I'd argue is likely to be, the ammo of a lot of these clean energy industries. A lot of these people want to create a better world. So I think they'd be willing to be reflective and avoid overzealousness to an extent. Certainly, I think it's fair to say, we know a long list of pros for something, every con we can think of is manageable, and the alternative is driving global climate change, so let's scale up the first thing, and just keep an eye on it to make sure we're not in over our heads. I don't mean to limit this to clean energy, though, I just think that's an easy example. Certainly, there are other climate-mitigating technologies, from energy efficiency, to public transit, to bicycles, to climate-smart agriculture... There's also a variety of adaptation measures. There's carbon capture. There's solar geoengineering. There's all these different conversations that look different from each other. But I tend to approach them similarly. Do the pros outweigh the cons? Does it beat the alternative? And if so, let's take any issues seriously. But let's also not waste any time moving forward. And I don't think everyone takes quite that approach, but I do think for every overzealous person, there is an underzealous person. On this podcast, my goal is always to bring people from different perspectives together and try to find common ground. So hopefully, this is one area in which we can do that. Thanks so much for the question, Bryce, and thanks to all of you who listened to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Sweaty Penguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for tip of the iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on Monarch Butterflies.